Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 6th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. There is one thing that we know about Facebook. It makes astronomical profits. Almost no one outside of Facebook knows what happens inside of Facebook. This is Francis Hogan, an insider and a whistleblower. The company intentionally hides vital information from the public, from the US government, and from governments around the world. The documents I have provided to Congress prove that Facebook has repeatedly misled the public about what its own research reveals about the safety of children, the efficacy of its artificial intelligence systems, and its role in spreading divisive and extreme messages. Yesterday, Hogan told U.S. Senators Facebook intentionally targets teenagers and children under the age of 13. It leads teens towards anorexia-related content, and it makes young girls and women feel bad about their bodies. We can afford nothing less than full transparency. But Facebook, she says, is anything but transparent. As long as Facebook is operating in the shadows, hiding its research from public scrutiny... It is unaccountable. Until the incentives change, Facebook will not change. Francis Hogan asked members of Congress to imagine a world without Facebook. Yesterday we saw Facebook get taken off the internet. I don't know why it went down, but I know that for more than five hours, Facebook wasn't used to deepen divides, destabilize democracies, and make young girls and women feel bad about their bodies. Facebook has refuted Hogan's evidence, but if the world was safer, as she claimed, for women and girls for the five hours it went down on Monday, it begs the question, would a world without Facebook be a safer world for women and girls? Let's talk to Nolene Blackwell, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. A very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What's your thoughts on that question? So it's, I don't think it's really either or anymore. Uh, but for a long time, we and a number of those who work against intimate violence uh, uh, and, and abuse of intimate images have long thought that the values and all the good things that Facebook and the other social media platforms, the other sharing platforms like that can do is totally 
left to its own devices. It is totally unregulated. And that's why, for instance, now that the Doyle is likely to be debating legislation in the coming session about the regulation of broadcasting in general, including some regulation of these media platforms, Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and a whole lot of other organisations led by the Children's Rights Alliance because it is so uh, it is so relevant for young people. We've combined to just call out the fact that in the new legislation that is promised in the Doyle, there is going to be no provision for people to make an intimate uh, to make a complaint mm. an individual complaint. There is only going to be the most minimal regulation of the platforms. And that is the problem. It's not really... That comes back to the transparency that she was saying is necessary because they're creating these algorithms uh, whereby, as she uh, gave uh, as an example, a youngster might be looking at healthy recipes and they end up looking at something to do with anorexia. Uh, And we know that uh, there can be all kinds of uh, things uh, that come up on the internet that you weren't expecting when you were looking for something completely different. And we've long suspected that sharing of hateful images, sharing of images that are not acceptable, that they gather more views and that we're pushed towards them. But now we are getting some information that that, in fact, is the reality. All of these, they're massive companies, Michael. Like, all of them are massive. They have lobbyists. They They have teams. They have firms of lobbyists working at the European Union, working in Washington, They have lobbyists in Ireland as well, working in relation to making the case that these are these are our friends. But because they are unregulated, we don't have and because we see that we see the harm that they can do. I'm sure loads of people do. There's every single day somebody is is contacting us about worries that they have about whether um, an image that they shared consensually has gone up um, unconsensually on social media and even if they get it taken down after a while it it is going to be there and could be shared on further every single day we know that racist behaviour is is promoted Mm. on platforms and we know how long it can take some people to get something taken down and where is it gone by the time it's taken down it's the fact that it is the only area if you and I were to have a racist hateful discussion Mm. right now you'd be uh, in trouble and I'd be in trouble with the authorities because you're regulated and the trouble is that they are not regulated they are they are secretive they are not revealing their information and there is no way to hold them to account and that's what the new legislation coming in could do if it was uh, if it if it was conceived in that way if it mm. was recognised that while social media does great good and it does great good for us in the rape crisis mm. centre as well we're able to put out our helpline number yep. you know on every so often and across the platforms so we can do all that good communication but it's the lack of effective regulation it's the lack of people being able to actually hold them accountable. And indeed, and she recognised that herself. Uh, I think she was saying that she was a great believer in uh, Facebook or 
the positive thing that Facebook could be and uh, that when it was down for the five hours, she said women and children were, or women and yeah. girls were safer as a, a result. But on the other hand, it meant uh, that people couldn't share family photographs of newborn babies and so forth, which is a, a wonderful service that it, it provides. When it comes to regulation, though, and the transparency involved in all of this, uh, she said that Facebook and indeed social media companies in general should be treated like the tobacco industry uh, when uh, the governments of the world discovered that they were hiding the harms uh, that they uh, were causing through their products or like car companies uh, that were forced to adopt seatbelts and that sort of thing. Is that the type of strict regulation that you would be supporting? That's not even strict regulation. That's just stopping harmful activity. We would support that. We would support more recognition um, or more access to the algorithms that do drive the harmful behaviour along the way. Those kind of things are simply stopping harm and the companies don't do enough for that. Now they will all say that they have safety mechanisms in place but the mechanisms are slow, they happen too late and and the truth is that Facebook don't even seem to recognise this themselves. Uh, Zuckerberg came out later saying this was not the values of Facebook and the rest of it. He has been told, Mm. the company has been told again and again that the mechanisms in place for safety, for making your complaint to them first and then to an independent body which could control them. It's kind of like the tobacco industry but I also liken it to the banks for instance. Nobody like nobody loves the banks entirely if they're in debt to them or something but they're absolutely essential and they can be very valuable but they need regulation and we need to be able to have an ombudsman there mm. for when uh, the, when the banks uh, abuse people's trust to be abuse people's lives. Mm. So it's a question that all of all of these things we're stu- we're making some progress in our own little way. So, for instance, you and I discussed before the fact that it is now illegal to share intimate images without consent. That's in place since this year. We've put in new legislation around grooming of children, but the social media companies have, in some way, been less. Let let run the show their own way, and that has and that failure of the state to regulate big, comp- huge companies mm. that impact on all of our lives is as dangerous as letting banks manage, as letting pharmaceutical companies manage without having to test their products first and get certification first. It is. They are commercial companies. Their main aim is to make money. They they are making billions as you Mm. said at the start Mm. and and they are not subject to the normal healthy regulation that any massive commercial company should be. Okay let's talk about Instagram and Instagram kids and indeed WhatsApp for that matter because uh, perhaps uh, the worst possible outcome uh, was experienced uh, and discussed at an inquest uh, yesterday into the death of Derek Quigley. Derek Quigley was a journalist who died four years ago. Uh, She decided to end her own life. Uh, She was undoubtedly a troubled person uh, who had mental health issues and indeed substance abuse issues. uh, And I think that's probably best signified uh, by what her, her mother said in Alien Malone's words. Uh, she said, we lived different lives, but agreed on many things. Dara was inspirational, but frustrating, imaginative, but stubborn. My life is more peaceful, but much emptier, much poorer without her fly high starling uh, as part of 
uh, her statement uh, to the court. Uh, but uh, the uh, end of Dara Quigley's life followed uh, something on WhatsApp when a guard uh, shared images of her that he, he talked a video of her walking naked in a distressed state uh, shortly before her death uh, and uh, I think she was aware of that being shared on the internet through social media uh, before making that irreversible decision that she did make. Uh, it ties in very much with what we've been hearing about the concerns uh, about social media and it's the type of thing that can get out of hand very quickly. The Garda involved apparently has resigned since and he shared it to somebody who wasn't a member of Angarda Shiakana who put it up uh, on WhatsApp uh, for others to see. Uh, a dreadful story all told. They, they are absolutely dreadful and, and we're, uh, I mean, I, I just, even as you read out that what, what Ailey Malone said there, it's just like the, the, the level of tragedy that was involved and that was caused by human actions where it is, I, I presume that when the Garda filmed the monitor um, uh, that, that showed Dara quickly in that distressed state and then shared it, I presume he didn't mean to do the massive harm that he did, but he did it. And actually, that that uh, the legislation I spoke about earlier that we that came in at the end of last year, beginning of this year, would make that an absolutely straightforward criminal offence now. Um, but it wasn't at the time. So um, so very quickly, it, she you know it's it's just it is. I, I find that case particularly difficult because the woman, the woman's hurt was filmed and shared and shared further and everybody who was involved in that was did did it on purpose you know these things don't happen by accident Mm -hmm. and there are two things you can go back to the social media company it took four days to take down uh, that imagery Uh, but the other thing is it's really really we have to question ourselves as well about the kind of things that we are prepared to share um, because, and again, uh, the Department of Justice just last month launched a campaign about this, about reminding people that sharing um, intimate images is abuse uh, and that it is criminal behaviour, but that it's also deeply harmful behaviour and there is no justification for it whatsoever. So, uh, so it, unless I mean, unless that guard had been doing it, say in a professional capacity to another guard mm. to alert them to something, but that uh, that wasn't the case. So there is, it is definitely, it's this is for all of us. We have all taken social media as a new toy that we, um, you know, that that we just kind of can use and abuse. I see where um, the police in the UK are coming under fire for taking selfies mm. uh, with uh, crime scenes and sharing those so we all we, we all have to understand as well that if we do that kind of thing it, we might as well be sharing physically harm we might be as, might as well be physically harming a person if we if we share that kind of harmful material and that goes much further uh, than just our quickly that goes to the kind of comments we tolerate mm. to the kind of jokes we share on whatsapp to the kind of uh, things we find uh, that that we can pass on to the comments we make on the social media platforms. So there's, we do not, we are not digit, 
digitally literate. We might be able to use the machines, we might be able to use the platforms, mm. but we don't know how to use them in uh, in a civilised way. Uh, yeah. That uh, and I even hesitate to use the word civilised because you know it's it's just it's just not human. It is inhuman the kind of sharing that people seem to think is okay uh, and that they get a kick out of sharing, even though it is so harmful to and somebody else. It's not something that some of us at least uh, can use on a a take it or or leave it basis that we use it today and maybe use it again next month or the day after that uh, depending on how we're feeling Uh, it's addictive uh, and that uh, seems to be part of uh, the problem uh, that is being highlighted by this whistleblower Francis Hogan and uh, that Facebook and these other social media companies are aware of that uh, and uh, they're exploiting that addictiveness by uh, making it all the more addictive if you like Uh, and here in comes another concern and Instagram because like a lot of these social media outlets uh, you should be 13 years or older uh, to uh, become a a member and to be using these platforms. So uh, they're proposing that Instagram kids would be available to under 13s and there is concern about what might happen on Instagram kids and if children are using Instagram, what the child safety concerns are. Exactly. Uh, But even just before we move on to that Instagram kids as well, uh, you will notice with regularity that all of the media platforms and I'm going further now than the social media ones I'm going to ones like Pornhub and those ones that share pornography the last thing any of them want is any sort of um, accreditation of age for instance none of them want you to be able to to have to have um, a kind of a certificate to go on to certain Mm. sites so for instance a youngster going into a pub aged 15 even if they look 19 will likely have to produce a card to show they're over age. I'm not saying it can't be abused but at least there's some regulation there. In these cases children unless you have something requiring the social media companies to know their person to know the the origin of it and to have accredited sources of certificates we are never going to be able to stop youngsters from Making, making up ages and going on to adult mm. sites as well. So, but they don't want this because they certainly don't want to stop all the anonymous accounts. They don't want to stop all the accounts where people might not say openly what they will mm. say on social media. I suppose it's like having yeah. a, a fake ID going into a, a pub, although you're 12 years of age, it's not yeah. a, a appropriate and you can do that on the internet. And I gather that's a, a two-way street and that's what you're worried about, that older people can pretend to be 12 years of age or 10 years yeah. of age and represent themselves as children on a children's website. Exactly. And so that's a real problem with setting up um, particularly child-specific ones because although it is far, far too easy to target children already on the various websites, far too easy, far too easy to bring them into harm's way. If you set up children's ones, that will certainly excite and attract those who want to abuse children as well. But, but there is, it is, it is just a question in some ways 
it is a technical question a lot of this is Michael like mm. we need to be having this conversation about the general value of the internet mm. the general value of the social media platforms how in some ways it is a lifeline for many and how many people had to use it this morning in order to bring the code to school or mm. you know to find out where their meeting was due to be on or whatever all of those things are great it is great to spread the good word but it is a question of how do you ensure or how do you do your level best to ensure that people's right to privacy, to dignity and to be free from harm are protected? And this is the bit where the social media companies are saying, look, we're all lovely. We're doing it right. It's why Francis Hogan and other whistleblowers are important because they're telling us things that otherwise we wouldn't know. But I can't take from the fact that there is state obligations here. It is their job to protect and to promote the human rights of people and and not to lead them into harm's way, which is what is happening by omission if we don't actively do our level best to regulate these companies. Not easy. Some of them Part of it might be here in Dublin, but another part might be in, you know, another part of Europe or mm. the States or Timbuk somewhere. Too, it's yeah. very hard, mm-hmm. but, but, but it doesn't take from the need to do our level best. Okay. And if there was one thing that, that, you know, people were to concentrate on, if they're talking to public representatives and the rest of it, to make sure that if there is going to be a recasting of how broadcasters including the internet, digital broadcasters, mm-hmm. if there's to be a recasting of that, then focus on safety, focus on ensuring that people can get a remedy if they need it. OK, I suppose uh, another way of looking on it is uh, that there's a, a very good youth club that you'd like your children to go to, but uh, you wouldn't be telling them to go there at two o'clock in the morning and to take yes. dark alleyways uh, as uh, the route to getting there. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though, Nolene, and uh, before you leave us, uh, perhaps uh, we can tell people uh, that uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre offers a 24-hour helpline. It's available to everybody in uh, the country 24 hours a day uh, if people wish uh, to talk uh, about uh, sexual uh, abuse, assault or rape for that matter or indeed other issues of concern in relation uh, to sexual activity. Uh, the telephone number is one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. That's one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. And thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Nolene Blackwell, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Crime Victims Helpline has been providing information and support to victims of crime since 2005. Last year, it saw a 15% increase in contacts. That amounts to 5,170 contacts over the free phone helpline, which we'll give to you in a moment, their tech service, email, and indeed by post for that matter. Let's talk to Michelle Pocaber, who's uh, the Executive uh, Director of the Crime Victims Helpline. Good morning to you, Michelle, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I I take it that this is a glass that's half full rather than half empty. In other words, the reason that there's been an increase in contacts is that people are more aware of uh, your service rather than there being an increase in crime. And because they're aware of your service, they're availing of your service. Yeah, that's right, Michael. In fact, in you know 2020, which is where these stats come from, you know there was a, you know a significant decrease in reported crime, and yet we did see a big jump in our contacts. And we really do think that has to do with 
the year that was in it where people were in lockdown, people weren't able to um, meet face to face, they weren't able to get the supports from friends and family or kind of the more natural supports that people mm-hmm. have in their life. So, you know, the, the helpline, you know, we were contactable by pretty much anyway, but face to face. So we think that that increase was to do with just, you know, that people were able to pick up the phone or send an email as well. The, the Gardaí have been um, increasing the awareness of the helpline. So when people report a crime, you know, victims have a right to get support. They have a right um, to, 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 to get free of charge. Um, you know, help as they go through yeah. the criminal justice process. So the Guardian again, have really increased awareness of the helpline, which is kind of a, a starting point for, for many victims in terms of finding information, finding support, and then also finding other support services uh, in their area or more specialized supports, such as, you know, the Rape Crisis Center uh, for people who have been impacted by sexual assault. And, and there's mm. many other wonderful services. Um, Indeed, we've just Ireland. been talking about sexual assault uh, and there's many different crimes uh, from something uh, uh, at the top of the scale like that to uh, maybe having your phone stolen or uh, something uh, less uh, impactful on you personally uh, but something uh, that uh, is a terrible injustice whether it's your bicycle that's stolen or back to the other end of the scale if somebody is threatening to kill you or your partner is uh, abusing you and indeed uh, I think domestic violence uh, was uh, something that you saw an incredible increase in and again that probably ties in with COVID the restrictions and the lockdowns and people being forced to stay at home with pe- other people who were a threat to them uh, but regardless of what type of crime you've fallen victim to, what services do you offer to people? Yeah, so we do kind of three main things. So one, we offer a, a, a listening service. So non-judgmental, non-directional. So you can ring our 116-006 free helpline and just talk about your experience of, of what's happened to you. And um, sometimes that's kind of undervalued or people think what's the, you know, what's good is the listening, but we really find that that is, really valued by the people that access our our services because it is unusual in this day and age to just get someone to really listen to you and give you space to talk. Um, So then the second thing that we do is we provide information about the criminal justice system. So we answer questions. You know, a lot of people would never have interacted with the criminal justice system at all and suddenly they become a victim of crime and they don't really know what to expect. They don't know what happens with a GARDA investigation how is the decision made, whether or not to prosecute, what happens when a case goes to court. So there's a lot of questions. So we just really um, talk people through it. Sometimes they want to know, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? And it's, you know, we're not here to tell people what to do. We're mm-hmm. here to provide the information and the time to help them really explore their options to make the best choices, you know, for them mm-hmm. and their family. In other words, um, you can do A, B or C. It's your choice, but these are your options. Yeah, and mm-hmm. say, well, this is kind of what this might look like for you mm-hmm. um, if you do this or if you do that. Um, and then the third thing that we do is we provide information about other support services. Like I was saying, there's very mm-hmm. good um, victim support services all across um, Ireland. So it's really helping people find those services, um, access them, and then as well um, talk about counseling and how people can get connected to counseling services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, because uh, it really can be uh, a crime in the moment that it happens and one that stays for you for a long period of time. I think uh, a lot of people will have heard uh, other people tell them that they had the house broken into and they can't sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be very big. People, you know, a lot of people would have 
um, a lot of trauma responses to a really wide range of crimes that, that do include disrupted sleep, disrupted um, you know, eating, uh, physical symptoms, even though maybe you aren't physically assaulted, but you have stomach aches and headaches. And so it can really have a wide, um, a wide impact. And, and it really is, um, you know, the, the 116 006 helpline, we hear a lot, um, from a really wide range of crimes. And we see that it's not so much how bad the crime is. It's often, um, you know, crime that we, we kind of minimize a theft, um, you know, your car being stolen, but you know, some, it really depends on where the person's at in their life. So maybe they're already traumatized. Maybe they're already dealing with a lot. And then somebody, you know, steals their bike and their bike is how they make their living. Mm. And so now suddenly they don't have a way to, you know, to make money. And, you know, so it can really have a knock on effect. And I think we really normalize things like criminal damage or fraud or theft and can really kind of um, underestimate the impact it can have on people. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, a lot of people listening to us uh, this morning uh, because of uh, the level of uh, crime uh, that exists who can identify with what you've been saying and they can contact you on uh, the free helpline 116-006. That's 116-006. Thank you indeed, Michelle, for joining us on the programme this morning. Michelle Pocapper is uh, the Executive uh, Director of the Crime Victims Helpline. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, yesterday there was much talk around Lancer House about childcare and what can be done in the upcoming budget to fix some of the problems in the sector. Talks took place inside and outside of the house. Um, despite all the commitments and policies that are unveiled, we are still faced with a situation where parents in some cases are paying the equivalent of a second mortgage or second rent. And a recent UNICEF survey ranked Ireland among the world's most expensive countries for early years and childcare. This is Sinn Féin's Kathleen Funchen speaking to a private member's motion on childcare. And I think it's obvious to everyone here tonight and in the wider public that the early years sector is in crisis. And that would, those were some of the comments from the committee earlier today as well from, from the witnesses. It also goes without saying that early years in childcare was in crisis before COVID, during COVID and will remain in crisis after COVID. That's Sinn Féin's Kathleen Funchen, as I say. The Sinn Féin motion aimed to address some of uh, the problems in the sector. It must be resourced adequately to provide lower fees for parents and stability for highly qualified professionals, but it must also deliver a sustainable future for providers. And those are the three... Childcare was also discussed by the Children's Committee and outside childcare staff and providers staged a protest. And I was pleased to be able to go out and speak to providers, many of whom I've met over the last year and listen to the issues they've raised with the NCS. I've heard those issues. We are undertaking research about how we can address those issues in a targeted manner. And I look forward to bringing back uh, proposals to address that specific issue. So no children, particularly the most disadvantaged children, are not left behind. That's the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, who rejected the Sinn Féin motion and uh, tabled uh, an amendment to it. Uh, Let's uh, speak to Francis Byrne, the Director of Policy with Early Childhood Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Francis, and thank you indeed for joining us. You're calling on uh, the government to put together a five-year plan for the sector. Tell us more. Yes, absolutely, uh, Michael. What what Early Childhood Ireland is saying is that this needs to be, next week needs to be uh, a childcare budget. So last year in budget 2021, there was no increase for funding given to Ireland, even though, as everybody at this point knows, 
we have historically invested and are now at a situation underinvested and we're now at a situation where we are the lowest investors um, in early years care and education across the OECD. Yeah. The government has made a commitment in a strategy called First Five to double investment between 2018 and 2028. And what we're saying is there's now five years left to do that and the government must do the first increase um, as part of Budget 2022, but also next Tuesday outline a plan for the next five years so that parents in Meath and Louth and elsewhere can, as Deputy Function and others said yesterday, have certainty about what they're facing in terms of fees and so mm. on. Where does all the money go? Uh, a survey of workers shows 81% of those working in the sector are unable to meet unexpected expenses. 38% are actively looking for work in another sector because of how low the pay is in the sector. On the other hand, the fees are extortionate, parents would say. say They're through the roof. You'd need a a second mortgage or the equivalent of a a second mortgage, as we've been hearing. And on the third hand, uh, providers are finding it difficult to stay open. How can that circle be squared? By by greater investment. um, I'm not being flippant saying that. The last government did increase investment by more than 100%. The problem is we were coming from such a low base. And despite that increase in investment, we have only managed to go up by 0.1 of 1% in terms of our overall spend um, of GDP. So if you take Ireland at the moment, we're now at 0.2 of 1%. Sweden, which is recognised as the uh, best in terms of childcare provision, in terms of quality, and also has the lowest child poverty rate uh, in Europe, spends 1.9% of its GDP. So that will give you some idea of the problem. So as a result of that, providers are left trying to rob Peter to pay Paul, trying to balance the books Mm. um, with some help during COVID, which has been very welcome. Staff are left uh, on very low wages. Minimum Um, wage uh, for many of them, although they're... Minimum wage plus a euro or two, despite some of them having master's degrees. Well, I was just going to say that they're very well qualified, a lot of these people. Absolutely. Very well qualified. And any time that Early Childhood Ireland puts a course on and it has to be in the evening so people are working during the day or at the weekend. It's oversubscribed. Mm. This is a a workforce of 30,000, mostly women, who are dedicated and committed to um, delivering what they do and to improving their skills every day. And then the third broken piece of the stool is, of course, parents. Mm. So not only are parents paying the highest fees from take-home pay in the European Union, what expectant parents who are listening to us today will tell you is, you know, I put the name down in the, I put the baby, the unnamed baby's name down in the <laughs> crash yeah. before I told my, you know, my auntie that I was mm. expecting a baby. Yeah. I may have told my mum and my dad, mm. but I, ha- I hadn't told anybody else. Mm. Um, or before so, I came you know, off the pill. <laughs> well, there are, yeah. I mean, there, there are yeah. very mm. serious mm. issues yeah. of, of mm. access, particularly um, in the in parts of of, of Leinster, mm, mm. Um, and uh, and so that's that's a problem as well. But the important thing to say is, and we're you know we're hopeful about next week. We've seen interventions like that of Deputy Function. We've seen a very important policy document come from Fine Gael. Mm. We've seen an initiative come from the Labour Party in the last few days. We ourselves briefed the Social Democrats yesterday. Our fingers are tightly crossed. I suppose one of the things that Early Childhood Ireland would say is. Other countries get this right. It's not rocket science. 
It's about deciding that early years care and education is at least as important as primary and secondary school education and investing according to that. Um, And, you know, brain development and all the other reasons, Mm. as well as the economic dividends that come from investing in childcare. So that's what we're looking for next week. Finally, that an Irish government would deliver a budget for childcare. Okay, thank you indeed, Francis, for joining us on the programme this morning. Francis Byrne, Director of Policy with Early Childhood Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Yeah, thanks uh, to Gerard who was on uh, the phone to us uh, this morning saying social media platforms are businesses. Uh, their end goal is to make money. It's the same with all businesses. So thank you indeed, uh, Gerard, for stating uh, the obvious, uh, I think, uh, to some degree, which is why we were asking if the astronomical profits uh, that they make are being put above the safety of people who use their services and if regulation is needed to ensure that. Sarah has been in touch with us to say that social media has taken over people's lives completely. They're basically slaves uh, to these apps. Look at Facebook or Instagram. The blackouts earlier in uh, the week left people almost losing their minds because uh, they couldn't access them for a couple of hours. It was like their lives were over without them. Very, very sad. Yes, social media is an important tool today, but it should not be ruling our lives the way it is, Sarah says. Tom says uh, that uh, the regulation of social media should be a key priority for the government. It's vital that measures are taken to protect children and young people while they're online. The internet and social media are great for an awful lot of reasons. But they can also be dark places, scary places too, and regulation is essential. Thank you, Tom, and everybody who has been in touch with us today. As always, it's good to hear from you. Now, do you know somebody who has died from suicide, died by suicide? You probably do, because I think most of us uh, at this stage probably know somebody who has died by suicide. But if it has had an impact on you, Uh, The National Suicide Research Foundation, in collaboration with uh, the suicide bereavement charity HUG, would like to hear from you. HUG, by the way, is Healing Untold Grief Groups. And uh, we're joined by Fiona Toomey, who's uh, the chief executive uh, CEO of HUG. Very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, You're carrying out a a survey of uh, people who have been impacted by suicide, who've been bereaved by suicide, uh, and tell us who it is that you would like to hear from, because as I, I say, an awful lot of people would know somebody who's died from suicide. Good morning, Michael, and you're absolutely right. Uh, unfortunately, as you say, most of us know somebody who's died by suicide. Uh, now, it may not have impacted all of us, but it could have affected many of us. And um, What we're doing in collaboration with the researchers in the NSRF is we're doing Ireland's very first national survey. I mean, it's quite unbelievable to think that this has never happened before. We have never asked people who've been bereaved by suicide, you know, how they felt, how they are feeling, what supports they may have accessed, what supports they would have liked that weren't there. I mean, this is huge. This is a groundbreaking piece of research. So we want to hear from absolutely every single person out there. This is totally confidential and it's really groundbreaking. Okay Uh, and part of the objective is to find out if uh, the appropriate, the necessary supports are in place for people who've been bereaved by somebody else's suicide. Absolutely I mean if you don't ask people what they need how can you provide it and if you don't find out how they felt about what was provided how can you do any better so I mean I think 
think people who have uh, especially been bereaved by suicide will tell you it's a very long road. It's a traumatic loss and people need different things at different times. I mean, for example, HUG, which is the charity, you know, that I founded, um, we provide peer support, which is people who have themselves been bereaved by suicide, facilitating groups with people who are maybe earlier on in this awful journey, you know, to provide some group, some hope and eventually healing. And I suppose I think of it like grief Sherpas, helping people along the way. But everybody needs something different because we are all unique and that's what we're looking for. I mean, we think of people who've just been impacted by a suicide as, you know, a direct family member. But we know, for example, there are unfortunately thousands of people who have lost friends to suicide. There are professionals who've lost clients. You know, there are frontline workers, think of the fire brigade and ambulance services, who deal with people who've died by suicide all of the time. And it takes its toll and people need support. And that could be counselling, it could be uh, mindfulness, it could be therapy, it could be group support, one-on-one. We have to ask people to find out. And, you know, this Mm. came about really because uh, there was a piece of research done in the UK. They carried out their own survey for the first time two years ago. And some of the results that came out were really quite startling. You know, you don't think of perhaps excessive gambling as being a bereavement reaction yeah. or people who may have excessive sex, may have you yeah. know several different parts of promiscuity, yeah. reckless driving. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of things that you just don't think Eating, about. Drinking. Eating, drinking, yeah. all of those yeah. things. Just ways of trying to yeah. cope. Yeah. People grasping at Working. ways of trying to cope. <laughs> you know, uh, working, I say. Uh, working, any, absolutely. A, a, anything in excess, yeah. Anything in excess yeah. because... Nobody knows until they are faced with this awful loss how they're going to react to it. And it's understandable because bereavement is a terrible thing at the best of times. And uh, we were just talking to the Irish Hospice uh, Foundation yesterday about bereavement, dying and death and how some of us cope with it better than others and some of us cope with it better at some times than other times. Uh, But bereavement from suicide is terribly hard to contend with because to a lot of us, it makes no sense. And it's very hard to understand and as a result, very hard to come to terms with it. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, everybody who has died by suicide has died alone and they've died a violent death. And they leave behind up to 135 people. Every single death by suicide affects 135 people, Mm. which means that in this country alone, at a minimum, there are 60,000 people Mm. who have been affected by a suicide. Now, it doesn't mean that they all need therapy, you know, and they all need group support. Mm. But it does mean that we need, you know, it's a huge potential, you know, health crisis. Mm. How are people coping? You know, how does it affect their daily lives? Well, there, how does it affect their finances, their families? There may be gaps in the services, and uh, to some extent that's what you're looking to find out, and if uh, there should be services available for people that don't exist at the moment. But there could also be services that are available that people aren't availing of, and so that's another question. Why is that the case? Absolutely. That's a really excellent point. A lot of people don't seek support at all. Now, that's okay. I mean, they may have enough support amongst their own unit, their own Mm. family unit or amongst their friends, but particularly in minority groups. um, You know, men, we consider a minority group. Men are not very good at asking for support. People in the LGBT community, people, travellers, you know, um, 
perhaps people from the Roma community, uh, there are a number of minorities who don't seek support either because they're afraid to or they don't know about it or it simply isn't there for them. Mm. So we really want to hear in particular from minority groups, this is free and available and it's going to be continuing until Mm. December. So there's an opportunity on our website on hugg.ie to go and fill this out and it will be life-saving. That's the way I think mm. about it. Why is that? Because clock, but we can do something. Mm, yeah, tell, tell, tell me a little bit more about why you think it can be life-saving because bereavement is an awful thing. Uh, it can uh, stay with you for a, an awful long time and it can take an awful long time to mourn the death of somebody. It can be a very painful thing but if uh, the death makes no sense to you, if you can't come to terms with it, if it is nonsensical and you don't understand the reason why somebody decided to make that irreversible decision to end their own lives, is uh, there the chance uh, that uh, you will not be able to mourn them properly, that that will lead to negative thinking uh, for those who are mourning the loss of uh, that person and that that negative thinking can lead to uh, dangerous thinking and that we quite often hear about copycat suicides and suicide ideation or people becoming suicidal themselves as a result of it. And is that the type of thing that you'd be looking out for? Well, I think there are many um, different sort of areas of it. I mean, first and foremost, people, you know, who have lost someone to suicide, the why is the big thing. You know, why did it happen? And there often isn't an answer to that. And that makes it very difficult. With other types of bereavement, there is a why. You know why the person has died. You may have been expecting it. But with suicide, it's more often than not unexpected. So that can leave behind feelings of guilt or stigma or shame. People are afraid of the word suicide. They don't like to talk about it. They don't even like to say the word out loud. I think there's a feeling like, you know, it might make things worse if you talk Mm. about it. So a lot of the times people who've lost someone to suicide can feel very isolated because people in trying to think that they're protecting them by not talking to them, you know, they're actually making a situation worse. I mean, we know you can't fix it. There's no magic solution. But kindness and empathy and being present or even being practical go a huge way. I mean, the fact that 10 times, you're 10 times more likely to look at suicide as an option, you know, because it's been normalized within your own circle if you've been bereaved by suicide is pretty shocking. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's at risk, but the fact that your risk is elevated mm-hmm. 10 times is pretty outstanding. So we have to be very careful and make sure that people get support in the early days and not wait for them to come to us. It must be mm. proactive. Can I ask you about your own personal experience, Fiona? Have you ever been able to come to terms with uh, the death of your own daughter? Have you been able to mourn the loss of your little girl? you know I mourn her every day Mm. you know I mourn her every day um, and I know it's with me forever you know nobody who has lost someone is ever the same afterwards you know you Mm. you live a different life you know it doesn't mean you live an empty life or you leave a lesser life but you lead you know a different life and you know for me uh, that profound acute grief that you have in the early days has subsided Mm. you know but I mean I carry as I say a milli shaped hole in my heart you know, and this work, this work that I do is part of my healing process mm. because I know that things like this can make a real difference to people. Are you still asking why? I mean, it must have been very difficult to come to terms with it. Millie was just 11, wasn't she? 
just 11. Um, no, I don't ask the why very often. I mean, I might visit it very infrequently because there isn't an answer. Mm. And I know it's what, you know, most people ask, you know, either out loud or to themselves. Why did this happen? Why did it happen to her or him? And sometimes that's obvious. And other times it isn't because suicide's very complicated. And, you know, not everybody can be saved from suicide, you know, but it is to a large part preventable if the right supports are there in time, if people are connected up with things. Millie was a child, you know, so I mean, she wasn't fully developed, so she wouldn't have been able to rationalize thoughts and feelings. And the supports were not there for her. She wasn't helped when she should have been helped. Mm. And we weren't equipped or educated on how to react to, you know, the depressive episode that she went through very suddenly. Mm. Um, so, no, you don't get over it, but you learn to carry it a little lighter. That's the best way I could put it. Sure. I, I think on World Suicide Day every year, which will uh, be on Sunday, uh, World Mental Health Day, there's a great... Uh, feeling of solidarity uh, that people come together who've experienced uh, the same type of, of loss and uh, there's some comfort in knowing that you're not a, a, on your own. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you agree with that, Fiona. Uh, but oh, totally. Yeah. You mm-hmm. mean, that's yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. right. For me personally, and I know with the with dozens and dozens of people that I've come in contact, knowing you're not on your own, even if you never speak to them, to merely be in the presence of somebody who has shared a similar experience to yourself Mm. is very validating. You know, it really makes you feel like I'm not going insane. Mm. I'm not on my Mm. own. There are other people out there like me. And I can promise your listeners, you know, especially people who perhaps, you know, are in the early stages of their bereavement, there is hope. And it's really important to hold on to that. You know, you may feel hopeless in the early days. It can be an absolute struggle just merely to get one foot in front of the other but it's baby steps Mm. and there are people there to help you. Mm. Hug is one of them. We're part of the solution. We're not the whole solution. I mean, it takes many, many people but never, ever lose hope. Okay. And you and I know that uh, there's some people listening to us uh, this morning and they're hanging on uh, your every word uh, because uh, they're trying to find sense from your experience uh, and it's those shared experience that can help everybody through uh, what uh, is very very difficult to understand if it is at all understandable uh, tell us uh, a little bit more about hug and the survey uh, and uh, how people can make contact with you and how they can participate in the survey if you would please fiona absolutely it's really very very easy all they have to do is to log on to hug, H-U-G-G dot I-E. The survey's there. There's a button at the top and it says take the survey. Just click on that. You can do it on your phone, your tablet, your computer. It is difficult sometimes to complete a survey, especially if the bereavement has been close and it's a difficult subject and it's going to bring up a lot of feelings. So I want to reassure people that they can take their time you know, if they want to take a break from filling in the survey, they can. You know, the information they'll have put in will be saved and they can come back to it. It won't be lost. Mm. It's totally anonymous. We're not asking for your name or your address. We're not going to be phoning you back, you know, unless you actually wanted to contact us. So it's completely anonymous. And all of this information is going to be collated by the National Suicide Research Foundation. They're going to be working on this because this is an area that has never been looked at in Ireland and there's so little of it anywhere in the world, in the English-speaking world. 
which I found very shocking mm. because it's something I went seeking the why and what's out there and what do people do and how do they cope. And unless people look into it, how are they going to know? I kind of think of cancer maybe 20 or 30 years ago mm. when we never said the word out loud. You know, remember when it used to be mm. the C word? That's right. We didn't say it yeah. or the Kerry dance. We had all sorts of acronyms that we used to use. Mm. And then people started talking about it. And then the money went into the research and how far we've come. Suicide is the same. It's an illness that can be prevented. We may not have a cure, but it can be prevented. So by doing this survey, whomever you are, in any walk of life, it doesn't matter how long ago this loss was. It doesn't matter if it's 20, 30, 40 years ago. We know, unfortunately, there was a lot of shame and stigma, you know, with it being considered a sin when we used to say committed suicide, when it was, you know, a criminal act. It's not. We say died by suicide. So please do not feel that, you know, you don't, you know, it's not for you. It is for you. Your voice is so important to us. We really need to hear from you. Okay. And we should mention that there is help at hand if uh, people would like to talk to somebody. They can text hello to 50808 or they can free phone uh, the Samaritans on 116123 or email joe at samaritans.ie. Fiona, thank you indeed for joining us. Just to remind people, hug, H-U-G-G dot I-E and then click the button to take the survey, as you say. Thank you, as I say. Fiona Toomey, Chief Executive Officer of HUG, that's Healing Untold Grief Groups. Michael Reed on LMFM. Save Irish Farming, that's a call to arms from the IFA, which is holding four regional rallies this Friday, the first of them at half seven on Friday morning in Cavan. And we're joined by Tim Cullinan, who's the president of the IFA. Very good morning to you, Tim, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There's many challenges facing the farming sector at the moment, but I think uh, your main concern uh, that will be addressed through these rallies will be the government's attitude or policies uh, towards climate change uh, and how farming uh, is being used as you put it as low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Good morning, Michael, and uh, delighted to be on. Absolutely. I just want to make the point, first of all, if we look at the system of production we have here in Ireland of producing food, so it's one of the most efficient right across the world, and you know, that's very important. And you're right, the concern that we have and our members have at the moment is you know, all the issues that are on the table at the moment, uh, they're all based on reducing production. And you know, you're right, if you look at climate change, if you look at cap reform, a nitrate directive, so all of these serious concerns are on the table at the moment and you know, we are very concerned and disappointed that we're not having a round table discussion with government that we can jointly come together with a plan to protect our sector into the future. You know, we need a plan here now for anything from five to ten years. You know, if we look at climate mm. and um, there was a bill enacted in the Dáil, went through the Dáil, was voted through last June. We got an amendment to that bill on on carbon, which means the carbon that farmers are taking out of the atmosphere, sequestering into their hedgerows and their grasslands, and we got that included in that. Now we have a situation where we are concerned that Minister Ryan is trying to change that position again. Look, that's the, 
there's no commitment by the government, as I say, to protect our sector into the future. And that's why so we are having a, a day of protest on Friday, you know, mm. a, a, day, a full day devoted to this. And I have to say this morning as well, so if we don't get recognition from government that they're going to sit down with us, we're going to have to escalate this further in the, in the weeks ahead. And we do not want to be doing this. My, my request this morning to our minister and to our government that they will bring us in as farmers and sit down around the table and get a solution to this going forward, as I say, for the years ahead for our members up and down the country. OK, and you'll be starting very early on Friday morning at half seven, uh, moving to Roscommon at half twelve, to Port Leash in the evening at half five, uh, and then finishing up very late in Cork City at half eight. I take it you're expecting a, a big uh, turnout for all of this? Absolutely. I think it's essential that farmers will get out on Friday, you know, because their livelihoods, their incomes for years to come is at stake here. What's going to be decided over the next weeks and months is going to determine the volume of produce the farmers can produce over the years ahead. And obviously that will reflect on farm incomes as well. And, you know, as we all know, there's 30% of farmers viable at the moment. And our job in IFA is to ensure that we can get far more of our farmers viable into the future so look it's it's, it's critically important for farmers to get out there and support um, this protest on Friday you're right we're starting very early on the day I know it's an early start for people mm. in Cavan but I'm intending all of those protests myself because I want to send a very clear message to government that we're taking this very seriously and you're right we're working down through the country and we hope to end up in Cork somewhere uh, approximately around half eight on Friday night you know, where we will have the final protest and rally of the day Michael OK do you expect much disruption as a result of the rallies? No, look, um, as always, you know, the, the, those um, protests in the town you know, will be an hour, an hour and a half, and we don't want to be disrupting the public um, you know, throughout the country because we all understand you know, people are only getting back to business. Thankfully, we're seeing the back yeah. of COVID at the moment, and you know, we'd, we'd have the, the minimum amount of disruption, but we have to make our yeah. point to government you know, that we are not getting uh, the, the, the listenership or the attention that we deserve from uh, from the government, and if we look at it, farming is the largest indigenous co- um, sector industry up and down the country. And you know, this is about rural Ireland. We're hearing about the revival of rural Ireland. So we are the integral part of rural Ireland as farmers, and I think local businesses and it will support us as yeah, well because okay. they understand the relevance yeah. of, of the sector to their businesses I, as well. I'm sure they do. No doubt, though, you will make your presence felt uh, and uh, there'll uh, be uh, a big turnout uh, at each of the four rallies. Uh, you describe farming as the low-hanging fruit. Why is that the case? Because yeah, what we're seeing at the moment is if we look what's happening at the moment, we're hearing uh, Minister Ryan saying that the lights may go out by the end of the year. And and what is he, my question is, what is he doing to abate uh, measures from transport, from all the other sectors? It's very easy to blame agriculture you know, for, for, for climate or climate change. And he is the very person that's saying we are part of the solution. We, for years, Michael, we've been pleading with government to come forward in conjunction with us proposals that farmers can be part of the whole renewable energy space. And we've put numerous proposals and requests to 
to the government on this and they have been ignored by successive governments and we can put forward plans that would help to deal with the emissions from transport. I'm talking here about renewable energy, mm-hmm. anaerobic digestion, where we can use animal manures, we can do, use waste from up and down the country, mm-hmm. use some grass from farms, develop a whole new industry that would secure the supply of energy for our country. And you know, those are the issues that we have on the table and we want to discuss around the table with government. Yeah, and uh, you're confused. Would that be a way of putting it uh, at how data centres are being facilitated despite the fact that they might need 30% to 70% of all of the electricity that the country can generate uh, and farming is being regulated uh, because of uh, environmental concerns. Uh, I think you've also got concerns uh, about uh, other things uh, such as multinationals and uh, products that are being imported into the country that would have been available here otherwise. Absolutely. And if you look what's happening at the moment, if you just look at the energy, what we're hearing at the moment is to be able to to power up data centres that we're going back, powering up the coal-fired um, power plants. And mm. um, We've seen what has happened with Bornemona. They went from brown to green. They're decommissioned those plants. And I suppose the concern or an offshoot of that for us is the availability of peat here in the country it's not available now farmers are not allowed to harvest peat and what are we doing? We're importing peat from uh, across uh, Europe and, and from Russia and if you look at the forestry as well farmers have been asked to plant trees on their farms now and what I would clearly say here is you know, the forestry sector and what's happening there is an absolute um, disgrace. And I would say to the government that they need to come forward and resolve the issue around forestry first and not have uh, the industry having to import wood into this country when we have forestry available to harvest here. And because of a mess up in the licensing system, uh, farmers are not allowed to, to harvest their forests at the moment. Mm. So if you look at all those issues, we're talking about climate change. Where is the justice in importing wood from all over Europe, importing uh, peas from Russia, and we have availability of these products here in Ireland, and we're not allowed to process them at the moment. Uh, the so there's price no justice here for farmers uh, at the moment. And the price of timber is through the roof at that, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, well, four rallies uh, across Friday, uh, beginning at half seven in Cavan, Roscommon half 12, Port Leash half 5 and Cork City at half 8. As you say, you're going to attend all of them. I'm sure some of our listeners will attend some of them, probably most likely half 7 Friday morning in Cavan for many of the people listening to us uh, who do wish to support the rally. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about it over the course of Friday and indeed after that. But we leave it there for the moment, Tim. Thank okay. you indeed for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. That's Tim Cullinan, who's uh, the president of the Irish Farmers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's hear a little bit more about uh, the National Development Plan and uh, let's listen to this assessment of how it was launched by the leader of uh, the Labour Party, Alan Kelly. I've never seen a launch of a National Development Plan which aims to bring certainty to projects, actually create more uncertainty about their possibility than this even before it was even announced, even in the press conferences beforehand. Confusion abound. Junior Minister Oisín Smith said that this morning that none of the projects in the actual 160-odd pages are guaranteed, but it is more, quote, a direction of travel. Minister Emma Ryan said there will be healthy competition between projects. 
So that means obviously all the projects aren't going ahead. In reality, as my colleague Jed Nash behind me said, this is more like a work of fiction. It's a wish list with no clear delivery for a huge range of projects. Alan Kelly speaking in the doll yesterday. Kelly wanted to, to know when the projects promised in the plan will be delivered. In relation to many transport projects, is that they must go through two, not one, but two proofs by Minister Eamon Ryan. First one, they'll have to be climate proofed. You know, that's fair enough. But they'll also have to go through the following. The new national investment framework for transport in Ireland. Nifty, for short. That would prioritise future investment in land transport projects. Now, I, along with my colleagues, think Nifty is going to be quite shifty for you and your government. Now, it was around about this time that we were waiting to hear Brendan Shine's Catch Me If You Can. My name is Dan. So when Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael backbenchers want to know when a bypass, a road or the M20 is going to be built, they'll stu- suddenly be staring into Minister Ryan's eyes and he'll be getting very shifty about Nifty. And then from the sublime to the surreal. Well, can I confirm, first of all, that you are very... Uh, to uh, Deputy McGrath that you were very unlikely to see Minister Raymond Ryan on a Honda 50 at any time, at any point in the future. With an he, general, he generally pedals his own bikes. That's Michael Healy Rye. Ray, the Minister, uh, Simon Coveney responding uh, to Independent Matty McGrath. Simon Coveney stood over the process that will be known as Nifty. And in relation to, in relation to the Nifty process, I mean, this is, this is simply good governance, ensuring value for money, ensuring that uh, there's an environmental audit before you invest uh, potentially hundreds of millions of euros. And Deputy, you know only too well why that's necessary. Now that's uh, Simon Coveney. Uh, the Minister was speaking in the Dáil yesterday uh, as uh, politicians discussed uh, the National Development Plan. There's a, a lot in this plan. Let's talk uh, once uh, again about uh, some of uh, the mentions uh, that projects in County Louth get, such as the narrow water bridge, because the government is promising to deliver this uh, to tender stage. Uh, and there's also significant mention, I think, of uh, the Dublin Belfast economic corridor uh, and uh, a plan to pursue cooperation uh, to attract private and public investment in the Dublin Belfast economic corridor uh, to develop regional networks and clusters for regional or sub-regional strengths including tradable services, advanced manufacturing, construction and agri-food working on enabling infrastructure including in transport for tourism and on research and innovation capacities and enhancing educational attainment in the corridor to meet skills demand. Let's uh, speak uh, to Paddy Malone, who's PRO for the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce and also the person who was instrumental in uh, coming up with the idea of uh, the Dublin Belfast Economic Corridor. Good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Just uh, remind us what the corridor is, because this runs from Drogheda to Belfast, doesn't it? It runs, yeah, I mean, well... There's two diversions. The one that we that is in the National Development Plan, the, the, the master one, which is the 2040 plan, is Drawer Dundalk Newry, which, as you said, was a, a submission of uh, Dundalk. Um, and uh, it's now been bought into by everybody from Routh County Council, Meath County. Uh, every every organisation has bought into the process. 
it's been expanded in that uh, C8, as they're known as the, co- the eight councils that are between Dublin and Belfast have now come together. As Joan Martin, our chief executive of the Louth County Council chief executive, said that her wish is that it's not a tunnel that, le- that goes in somewhere at Fingal or at the airport and comes out somewhere around Lisbon. Um, and to be serious, it is a recognition that we are of equal status with the five cities of Galway and Cork and Limerick and Waterford. Um, so it was a win we got a couple of years ago, and it's now being sustained in this current uh, round. Um, and are you encouraged at, at uh, what uh, is uh, being considered or, or what is uh, being pursued uh, in uh, this uh, development plan? I think it's aspirational, and the problem with aspirations is no one really has any rows with it. It's when they get mm. into the detail that you're going to have problems and issues. Uh, you have, as your box pop has shown, uh, a number of hurdles to cross over, even when you know you come up with a good idea or whatever else. Um, there's a lot of money being floated around, uh, a lot of money for cross-border uh, communications in various different formats, whether it's in the DKIT, we'll be, we'll be putting our hands up for some of that. Um, but the the point of it is that it leaves this region, and I the, the region is broader than Dock Newry, but also everything along that corridor. So out as far as RD, down as far as Julianstown, or even Balbriggan, mm. it leaves that area identified as being one of the major growth areas for the t- for the next ten years. Now it's really common sense because that's the way the population is going, and we saw in 2002 when the government had one for everyone in the audience you remember there was 41 of them listed mm. none of them grew nothing happened so you do need this focused development along the major routes which is going to which is what's going to happen so from the point of view of do i welcome it yeah but it's the detail that's going to be important it's the implementation of it and the planning of it that's going to be critical to make sure that it actually works are you wor- are you worried about the narrow water bridge are, are, are you concerned that the government commitment to deliver this bridge is fantastic on one hand uh, but has left the government in a situation uh, where it, it may have to fund it single-handedly without any british money without any european uh, money look look there's no getting away from the fact that um, the one of choice on the northern side is the Southern Relief Road, which takes the traffic and the pressure off Warren Point Port and Newry City. There's no question about that. You talk to everybody. It's only when you talk to people in Warren Point itself or in Newcastle or Kilkeel and all the rest of it and down around the coast away from Newry and heading up towards Newcastle that you get uh, an enthusiasm for the narrow water bridge. Look, it would be great to think both would be built, but my money would be the UK will do the, the uh, Southern Relief Road, which they're more or less committed mm. to under a, a different Belfast plan. Um, Belfast being defined as almost the entire six counties. And, and that's a commitment that's already there. So I think it may well be that the Narrow Water Bridge, it, there might be a token amount coming in from Stormont or from Whitehall. But yeah, I think we could be caught with the whole bill. No European money, no British money. No European money, no, 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 and, and not very much British money. I mean, it mm. would make a huge impact on the tourism for the region because, by God, the Mourns, mm. Gullion and Cooley are magnificent. And they're a well-kept secret. Mm. Now, it's both for us are improving their the, the, the advertising campaign in that area. But even if I look at uh, Northern Ireland tourism, where do they spend the money? It's the Titanic mm. Quarter on the Giant's Causeway. Mm. There's not much spent advertising the Mourns. Well, it's gone to 
be a benefit both sides of the border. It is. But if but if I was spending British money, I wouldn't even look at it because the Irish government has committed it to it. Well, look, it's it's a matter of seeing what what can be done between neighbours and, and and working out in a friendly basis. Mm. But yeah, I think I think we have committed ourselves on the southern side. Like I can remember ten years ago being at the launch of the bloody thing in in the Carrickdale Hotel, mm. uh, and a, and a week later it being cancelled. I mm-hmm. mean, it was that farcical. Um, it's a good idea, but people need to sit down and be realistic about costs and everything else. And you know. By itself, it's not going to be the panacea for the region from a tourism point of view. It needs a lot more thought than that um, and a lot more infrastructure, uh, partic- you know, uh, particularly on access. I mean, access is going to be uh, difficult unless it's, mm-hmm. it's improved considerably on where it is at the moment. OK, Paddy, I have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. As always, Paddy Malone, PRO of Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Let's go to Killarney where PD Fora is holding its conference over the course of three days. Its General Secretary is Jared Guinan, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. At a time that I think has been particularly hard for the Defence Forces, in particular because of the low level of membership. Uh, there's a thousand fewer members of uh, the Defence Forces is the estimate, isn't it, uh, as should be the case. Why is that and what can be done about it? Um, Michael, uh, thanks very much for having me on. Um, well, the reasons are um, primarily pay, uh, though it's not um, it's not everything, but pay and allowances are a significant factor in the reasons why um, we are down uh, over a thousand troops off our established strength or our establishment. Um, what can be, we've also got issues in terms of contracts and mandatory selection, and the amount of hours that people are working. Um, all of these are contributing factors to the reason why we're down. Um, what needs to be done? There's a lot of work needs to be done, Michael. Um, I think the allowances uh, structure needs to be um, reformed in order to reflect the onerous and nature of the work undertaken by members of the Defence Forces. I think there's also, um, you know, it needs to reflect the hours that, that people actually put in. If you are working in, in, in any other job, you will get premium payments or overtime uh, for working additional hours, and that's just not the case in the Defence Forces. Um, I think that there is also issue with contracts. People don't have security or tenure. Um, that there is, there is an issue with uh, contracts for personnel who enlisted in the Defence Forces after 1994, and they face an uncertain future. Mm. And of course, uh, the Defence Forces uh, critical public service, uh, and uh, all the more so in the year that was COVID and the additional services uh, that your members provided. Absolutely. Um, Our members put their shoulder to the wheel um, very early on. I mean, members were called to do uh, logistical work, contact and tracing, they transferred, you know, test samples from Ireland over to Germany. Um, they established, um, you know, testing centres all around the country. Um, and, of course, all of this, Michael, was in addition to their normal security functions. Um, you know, people had to guard prisons. They had to travel overseas, mm. um, you know, to do uh, guard banks. Um, so all of those uh, normal security, internal and external security functions, were carried out in addition to the work with COVID, and it has placed considerable strain 
on members. I mean, if you look at Barracks's like Dundalk, mm. um, you know, that they would have a high operational tempo there. And, uh, you know, in addition to that, I know that members up in, in the Dundalk and Gormanstown camps um, would have worked in private nur- uh, private um, nursing homes as well uh, to augment um, the staff that had to leave, you know, the private uh, sector staff that had to leave as a result of catching COVID. Um, and they did so without, uh, you know, um, they were called upon to do so. They, they, they believed it was their duty to do so, and, and they did. They, they, they've worked considerably um, you know, over the past uh, 20 months. Okay. Well, we've heard terrible stories uh, about the terms and conditions uh, that your members have been enduring over a, a long period of time, homeless soldiers sleeping in cars and so forth. So it's probably little wonder that fewer attracted I- into the Defence Forces. Uh, but uh, the reputation uh, has uh, not been helped by the revelations uh, by the Women of Honour programme uh, and indeed uh, the revelations of harassment and and uh, bullying uh, and uh, sexual abuse in the force. Um, indeed, and PD4 were shocked and appalled to uh, hear the, the revelations by those brave women uh, on that um, RTE program, uh, the Women of Honour program. Um, th- there can be no place for bullying or harassment in the Defence Forces. Is, um, I know that is it not endemic in the defence forces? Endemic, um, it's 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 a it's a hard word to say. Endemic, it does happen. Um, I think endemic would say that is it is widespread and, and continuous. Mm. I think that um, there are. I mean, the, the, undoubtedly, there are issues with um, harassment and bullying. We we have to remember that the defence forces is uh, a robust workplace. You know, it's not like uh, every other job in in, in mm. the public sector. Um, or in the private sector, mm. there is a, a robustness to it that um, you know that has to be there. But um, I know that for our part, PD4 has submitted numerous complaints um, on behalf of members who have experienced bullying, and it's not just female members of the defence forces; it mm. is male members also, yeah. um, you know, who experience bullying and harassment. Yeah. And we need to stamp it out. And uh, the minister Simon Coveney is uh, to appoint a, a confidential contact uh, for people uh, who have uh, suffered that type of uh, behaviour. I guess I, I was surprised the PD4 was shocked to hear of uh, the revelations uh, to some degree. Uh, we might just listen to what uh, in, or people before Prophet TD McBarry said about this in the Dáil recently and ask you to respond to it. Quartermaster Sergeant Corina Malloy says, quote, it is absolutely systemic, unquote. Not a case of a few bad apples, systemic. Of course, misogyny is part of the DNA of armies and police forces in all capitalist societies. That's not to say all members of those forces are sexist. It is to say that sexism is part of the culture. Wayne Cousins, the killer of Sarah Everard, was said to have indecently exposed himself on more than one occasion and was nicknamed the rapist by colleagues. His brand of toxic masculinity was not a deal breaker for his career until he did what he did last March. A government you served in, Minister, explicitly excluded the Defence Forces from the Irish Human Rights and Equality Act, did not allow members of the Defence Forces to unionise, did not allow members of the Defence Forces to strike. None of the above are magic bullets, but had these rights been in place, they might have acted as some deterrent to abusers in powerful positions. Minister, not a few bad apples, not a tweak here and there to fix things, systemic change to address systemic rot. 
Jared Guinan, do you accept what McBarry was saying there that it's not just a, a few rotten apples? Um, I, I would find that hard uh, to to um, agree with. I do know that you know the lack of accountability is impacting on um, the defence forces. I do know that we have taken complaints. I mean. Um, it would be wrong to tar everybody that exists within the Defence Forces with the same brush. Is there a culture of sexism and misogyny? Um, I know that if you look at the uh, TNS MRBI report that was done by the um, by the Department of Defence back in 2007, they would have said that there was instantaneous or spontaneous, spontaneous reporting of sexism and, um, you know, uh, mm. and harassment at that time in 2007. And that was five years after the climate, so, or the independent monitoring group had reported. I know that we have introduced a significant number of policies uh, within the Defence Forces, but I think that what's been sorely lacking is the accountability. Um, and that has given rise to, um, you know, a situation where many women don't feel safe within the Defence Forces. And would uh, trade union uh, status uh, help with that? Uh, you want to be affiliated, PD4 wants to be affiliated with ICDO, the Irish Congress of uh, Trade Unions, uh, McBarry talking about unionising uh, the force. Would that bolster your case in terms of trying to help people to defend themselves? I think it would. I, I think it, it, it teaches you know, us as, as, you know, representatives of our members, what's best practices in, in other organisations. It allows us to sort of exchange ideas how to, um, you know, to to um, bring in practices that uh, have worked in other sectors and uh, to explore those within um, within our own uh, organisation. So, yes, I would, I would say that, you know, the... the exposure to uh, a wider um, sort of church or broader church mm-hmm. of uh, ideas is um, would it, definitely help. Is there an improper or inappropriate balance of power uh, where you have very powerful people in the higher ranks of the defence forces? Well, that's the nature of the defence forces, you know, that you do have a hierarchical structure. We're based on a rank structure. Um, so I think it is... but. You know, that, that's just the nature of the work that we do. But I think accountability has to be at the forefront of, you know, um, of everything that no matter how high you go up the chain, you are accountable at the end of the day. Okay. That's, that's where we're coming from. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining Thank us on the program. Much. Thank you. That's Jared Guinan, who's the General Secretary of PD Fora, the representative body for the Defence Forces. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and press-on falsies.